It's Thursday, and we're going to be breaking down the candidates' climate forum. Then I'm sitting down with the one and only Cheryl Crow. So we'll see you on the timeline, if it makes you happy. See what I did there? Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Zavert. She's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM, if it makes you happy. I'm, I'm like a little bit embarrassed about my pun there. It was so good. I love Cheryl Crow so much. I'm so excited you're talking to her later on the show. Um, but that's why we love her. Her music, you know, just transcends puns, time, and space. It's stuck with us mm-hmm. for, since the 90s, like Forever. almost 30 years. I, well, you have nine Grammys and you're that iconic. Like, that's what happens. I think that's how it goes. So, anyway, well, we have some joy for y'all today. Besides <laughs> Cheryl Crow. Besides Cheryl Crow. <laughs> Yesterday was the first day of school for many, and, wow, did y'all have a rough day. Here's a tweet from Kennedy. At this point, I'm about to make a thread of these children and their before and after school pictures because laughing my fucking ass off, which is the mood. Oh my God. So we have to show you more of these photos. They're incredible. A young girl loses her ponytail. She lost her ponytail. And the first school day. How does one lose their ponytail, darling? How I, I don't know. You know, I really feel for these children. Like, look, they all look so a leg gone. stylish, like put together. The entire, like, her, her face tights says, are gone. Her face says, I know I'm going to lose these pants. Her, her face says, <laughs> I am about to fuck up this outfit. This is so good. That my parents probably spent a lot of time yeah. me. This is out. why I don't understand when people buy their kids really expensive clothing. I mean, I say that being a kid, my parents did that for, because you get them dirty. Like, you're going to lose them, right? They're going to ruin them. Uh, you but know, I if think- Zach has a kid, it's going to wear, like, little Gucci loafers. Come on now. You know what? This is not day three of dragging <laughs> Zach. We don't come back from Labor Day. I'm sorry. And- <laughs> I know. I've really been, I've really been all the past couple Zach. Staffer because he likes to wear nice things sometimes. But in all seriousness, you know, children do the darndest things. They and do. I'm very excited. Potentially, I have a kid who will come home and I'll be like, how did this happen to you, my dear? I know. It's like maybe they were running on the schoolyard or something. Like, I could imagine. What type of run was she know, doing that she loses a leg? Kind of scenario. But I think it's also just a greater metaphor mm-hmm. for, like, the feeling of coming back from having the summer off mm-hmm. to, like, Getting right back into things. Yeah. Like, you kind of feel like. Like they throw you just, back in. I yes, heard exactly. from our executive producer, yeah. his son came home with homework. Day one, homework. Rule. This is awful. Rule. Awful. Yes. The world is already ending. Don't make it even worse, y'all. Yes, no but more. we got so much joy from these yes, photos. Yes, we did. They were great. And we want to get some joy from you all. But let's take it to the timeline. Send us your favorite back to school pictures using the hashtag AM to DM. And later on in the show, I will show you mine. Can I just say, we've gotten uh, a little teaser of the photo, and it is everything. (laughs) They are quite something. You will see young Zach wearing (laughs) designer duds from uh, the czar or whatever it was called. Armani Exchange. I don't know. Well, looking forward. It's going to be great. (laughs) Well, after watching the uh, CNN forum on climate change, Zara Hirji tweeted some final thoughts. We learn new things from candidates beyond what's in their plans, such as how people align on banning fracking and offshore drilling who is pro or anti-nuclear, who supports a carbon tax. And two, we saw candidates get wonky on different things, from Klobuchar on energy efficiency to Booker on the food system. And number three, there was a big range in how comfortable comfortable or energetic candidates were on stage. And four, candidates really didn't attack each other, and there weren't as many jabs against Trump as I would have expected. The biggest jabs were against the fossil fuel industry and Republicans in Congress. Zara is a climate reporter for BuzzFeed News and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. That you survived hours and hours of this forum. Was there a particular policy or plan that was most popular across all of the candidates? There were actually several. I mean, there was a lot of overlap, but I think the 
main policy or the overarching goal was they've all adopted a target to get the U.S. to run on a clean energy economy, basically to have net zero emissions by 2050 at the latest. And that means our economy will be producing or releasing the same amount of emissions that we're putting up into the air as we're taking out of it. Some have more dramatic goals, but that was like the benchmark. Hmm. And that being the benchmark for everyone, how achievable will this be if they are elected to office next year? That's a great question. And they didn't really wade into that too much. I think part of that depends on the results of the 2020 elections, not just for president, but for Congress. You know, will there be a Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate? Uh, will someone have to rely on executive order to do basically get to that point of 2050? You probably can't do it all on executive order. They're going to need to get some legislations passed. So will they be willing to get rid of the filibuster or find a way to work with their colleagues across the aisle? They provided a few hints out who might go one way, but you know, that's, a, that's yet to be seen. So beyond the specifics of their policies and ideas, um, who did well in this kind of format, interacting with the audience and their questions, and uh, who seemed uncomfortable? Yeah, I so judging the reactions across Twitter from activists and energy policy wonks and talking to a few people this morning, Elizabeth Warren really stood out. She came with a message about how climate change fit into her overall plan. And I think a lot of people got the impression that she knew what she was talking about and could fit together her larger fight against corruption, how climate change fit in. I also thought Cory Booker, who was the very last candidate to go on, he didn't take the stage until 11.20 p.m., had a ton of bubbly energy and also some really smart responses in terms of his thoughts on innovation. And as I mentioned in my tweet, you know, his ideas about ways to improve the food system without necessarily going to attack the beef industry and saying we should all get rid of our hamburgers, which the moderators were pushing very hard. On the opposite spectrum, the very first candidate to go up at 5 p.m. was Julian Castro, and he just fell a little bit flat. Mm. Well, you know, there was one candidate in the race who is now no longer with us, Governor Jay Inslee, who has been on the show with us, um, who made his entire campaign about climate change. How are you seeing the impact of his campaign in last night's uh, discussions? He may have dropped out of the race, but he had a very strong presence on the stage last night. Multiple candidates referenced him and his policies. Most notably, Elizabeth Warren has come out in the past 24, 48 hours, basically saying she's adopting his plans. He had announced when he was dropping out that all of his plans were open sourced, up for the taking, and he encouraged his fellow competitors to take them on. She's the first person to really openly say that she's doing that, but many others gave a nod to him. So he clearly had a positive impact in pushing these candidates to take this issue seriously. Hmm. Now, beyond the dynamic among the Democratic candidates themselves, um, how much did we hear about Trump last night? Did they miss an opportunity to attack the president? It really varied by candidate. I felt like we could have seen more attacks on him because that was an area where if a candidate did have a particularly striking attack, I felt like 
that got through, at least in terms of chatting and watching the interactions on Twitter. For example, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg had, was the only person to bring up Trump's Sharpie Gate incident from yesterday of how it seemed like he had or someone in his administration had altered a National Hurricane Center forecast map. And when asked if he had to ask Trump a question on climate change, basically said the only thing he would ask is to have him move aside so that we can take an issue. People seem to love that. And I was surprised there weren't more attacks. Mm. Well, you know, since there weren't more attacks on Trump, how are activists responding to the topics that were on stage? You know, climate change is a huge thing that has not been discussed before ever, and it seems like it's Mm -hmm. finally being talked about at the highest levels possible. Overwhelmingly positive. People were thrilled to see the level of enthusiasm and ambition in detail that practically all of these candidates were providing. Sunrise movement, the youth activists seemed very happy with the answers, particularly related to ambition and to tackling environmental justice, making sure that communities of color and low-income communities won't be left behind, but really get a lot of help in how they're going to combat climate change, but also be part of the solution. I think the one candidate or thing that really stood out in a negative light was Joe Biden's time on stage. He got pressed about a fundraiser he's going to have tomorrow, or I guess now today. Um, And one of the hosts has some ties to fossil fuels. And while it's unclear how close those ties are, this was a stand that the Sunrise Movement really took on. They asked the question in the first place, pressing him on it. And despite his answer and his campaign's response afterwards, have basically put a line in the stand saying they want him to drop that fundraiser. What he's doing is not enough. But apart from that, it was overwhelmingly positive. Well, I guess we will have to see how this uh, plays out in the debate when that happens. Zara, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. That just reminded me that when we had some of the Sunrise uh, movement yeah. activists on, that they, you know, a while back were not happy with Joe Biden. Yeah, because, they were you know, very not happy. Yeah, here so we I are. I think they're going to keep nailing that one in, Uncle Joe. So be ready. Well, <laughs> well, switching gears this morning, Scott Dorkin, you tweeted, breaking felony arrest warrant issued for Trump supporter Jacob Wall for unlawful sale of securities. Karma. And here's a tweet from Michael Avenatti. To those that say that we are too divided as a nation and will never be able to agree on something universally— I disagree. I point to the arrest of Jacob Wall as our single greatest unifying (laughs) event. Joining us today is the Daily Beast reporter who broke this news, Will Sommer. Good morning. Hi, thanks for having me. It's always great to have you, Will. Always. (laughs) Well, you know, what we have to find out from you, what has Jacob Wall done today exactly? Right. So so this is, of course, a a fellow your your viewers may be familiar with. He's sort of a hapless uh, operative. He tried to concoct a sexual assault smear against Robert Mueller, against Pete Buttigieg. Uh, he has kind of these various schemes that, uh, that that fail almost immediately after he starts them. So in this case, uh, he's been charged with unlawfully selling securities in California. Uh, this relates to a, a hedge fund he had that uh, w- was accused of misleading its investors and uh, eventually earned him a lifetime ban from this uh, futures trading association. So, I mean, this is a felony. So this is serious stuff, uh, Jacob Spacek. Um, I mean, he has done so many things oh. that uh, haven't seemed to kind of carry a lot of gravitas in terms of the consequences. Why consequences now with this specific issue? 
right? It's funny. I mean, someone compared this to like catching Al Capone on tax evasion. So, I mean, it, this is a, uh, it, it, this apparently was an investigation that was in the works for a while. And in fact, the statute of limitations was right about to run out. And so that's why the prosecutor filed it. Uh, essentially, had they waited another week or a little more than that, uh, Jacob could have gotten off scot-free on this. So, uh, so they got him right as it was running out. And, you know, my sense is that there is, there are a couple other things potentially uh, legally that Jacob could be facing in other jurisdictions. So uh, this may be just the start. Mm. Well, we pointed to this earlier with Michael Avenatti's tweet uh, that Jacob Wall is pretty much a unifying part of uh, hatred on Twitter. How did he become <laughs> one of the most hated people on Twitter that has brought us all together in such trying times, Will? <laughs> he, he's a very colorful character. Um, you know, everyone from, obviously, liberals enjoy, you know, his mishaps because he's a big Trump fan. Uh, but indeed, many conservatives kind of see him as embarrassing or uh, they, they also enjoy his, uh, his capers. So certainly when I, when I put this story up, uh, you know, there was a big reaction. <laughs> a huge reaction. I mean, it was trending yesterday. Uh, and I think it only could trend on Twitter because that's the only place that people really care about Jacob Ball. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things we referenced some of his, the other uh, things that he's done before, like, uh, you know, starting these rumors uh, mm-hmm. about allegations about Mueller and about Buttigieg. Mm-hmm. Where, do, where do some of the, those stand today? Right. So it's unclear. I mean, we know in the case of the Mueller investigation uh, that, that Mueller's office referred that to the FBI. Uh, it's not clear if that's still under investigation or whether they're going to press charges. We'll see. Um, you know, the same thing with the Buttigieg situation where, I mean, he was literally caught on tape trying to uh, fabricate this stuff. Uh, we know he faked a death threat against himself and then reported it to Minneapolis police, which uh, would also be a crime. So, uh, you know, it, it's really unclear how these investigations are going. But, you know, certainly... Jacob is not letting any of this hold him back. Uh, he claims he's going to vet all the 2020 candidates and that they have to submit to his vetting to receive the Jacob Wool seal of approval. So, I mean, the sort of delusions of grandeur are, uh, are only continuing. Oh, the Jacob Wall oh, seal of approval. God. I'm sure many people are waiting for that. <laughs> God. Oh, my God. Well, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I, you know, we talked about this a lot. I've reported on Jacob Wall a lot with the Minneapolis situation, yeah. with the Buttigieg situation. I was the first person to interview the young man that they flew to D.C. to lie about a sexual assault yeah. thing. And um, this, this man just, it's really incredible that he just keeps trying and trying and trying and is just so famously failing, Jacob. So if you're watching this, please stop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's wild just to hear about uh, yes. the the litany of things that he has done and these ongoing investigations and like that's something he hasn't faced any consequences yet. So. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, anyway, no more Jacob Ball. But later <laughs> on the show, Alex is down with the one yes. and only Chill Crow. But up next, dear white people actor Griffin Matthews joins me for fire tweets. It's time for Fire Tweets, and today I'm joined by actor Griffin Matthews, who plays Deontay in this season of Dear White People, and is going to help me get through these very, very hot tweets. How you doing? Let's hot tweet, my Let's friend. <laughs> it's time. There's buttons. It's Luke. a lot. Do you feel the heat? It the, matches my outfit. It There's really, so many things. Does. I'm ready. The I'm outfit ready. is everything, y'all. Y'all don't see the whole thing, but uh, like... I, we have a, a young person from Project One Runway on later, and I feel like he should meet you because we need to meet everything. Yeah, I'm ready. He's in the green room. We can make it happen. Okay, let's go. All right, so you ready for this? Fire. All right, I'll here go first, go. and then you're going to do what I do. Okay. All right, perfect. So here we go. Maggie, you tweeted, people still use gay as an insult? I'd be more insulted to be called straight. <laughs> well, that's a thing. Do you, thoughts? I feelings? saw that parade. 
Oh, the straight pride parade. It was womp womp. Sad, really sad. We didn't love the straight pride no, parade. It wasn't, it wasn't the thing to do. No, it wasn't chic. There wasn't <laughs> glitter. There, was, there was zero. There was one person dressed in a clown costume, which I felt captured the oh, essence. Yeah. Boom, of the straight there pride we go. parade. That is the essence. Yeah, why not? All right, are you ready to give it a try? Okay, so I hit this. Hit it, and then read. My reading skills, here we go. Uh, nonchalant Charlotte, you tweeted. My husband was commenting on how soft my hands are, and I told him, my secret is all about housework. I don't do. I also don't do housework. And you are married. My husband could attest to that. <laughs> he's watching, he's like, it's yes. It's really that. tough to do housework. Is it? Why is it so tough? Because you have to do work in the house. See. And I'm just, you know. You're, you can't do work in this outfit. I don't tend to work in this outfit, but, you know. I mean, I'll do a dish or two. Okay. I'll make a bed. I'll fluff a pillow. Fluffing a pillow, so so brave. Of you. But that's why you get a husband because they'll also do everything. Note else. to self, husbands, okay. I'm ready. One, two, I need three. my my pillows fluffed, which sounds like something else. So we're gonna move that's on. That's a something else. That's a something else. Jabuki, save me. Jabuki, you tweeted. I hate when people say, "Are you okay?" No, I'm starved for affection, bitch. I will kiss you. <laughs> that, that's also me and my husband. Really? That was. I was like, did I write that? Did my husband say Your that? Your husband isn't being loving these days. He's he's actually being so loving because okay. he's in LA and I'm here in New York and he's holding down the fort. Okay, so you're LA based. I'm LA based. But you're in New York at the moment. I'm here for Fashion Week. Of course. And BuzzFeed. And BuzzFeed. Yeah. Fashion Week and BuzzFeed, two things that go together. Happening. All right, so this last tweet okay. is the tweet of the day and we're going to do it together. Okay, one, so, two, three. So one, two, three. Have you, okay, this is from Mitch. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever had those days when you're stuck in a situation like, I'm too fucking gay for this shit? <laughs> Are you feeling that right now? That could be today. <laughs> Actually, this is a very gay day. So it's like, yeah, I'm not so too fucking it's gay incredible. for this shit. No, I'm, we're gay enough for this shit. Well, we're not attending the straight pride parade that we know. Oh, thank so, God. I yeah. skipped that. I went to New Orleans. Did you really? Oh, yes, girl. I went to New Orleans, hid from that thing. What were you doing there? I was doing were a live you... show. We're, we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> was it one <laughs> what of these? What is this? Was that was doing doing that's all that we know yes, about New Orleans. Yes, Beans mom, I was this. doing this. <laughs> yeah, Let's talk about you. I don't like talking shit. about myself. That's why I'm a journalist. Yeah. All right, so Justin Simeon, the creator of Dear White People, treated this. Deontay was a beautiful soul. I met him in high school. He was fire with legs, one of a kind and ahead of his time. We lost him too soon. So today we say his name loud as fuck. Oh. So how did you handle the pressure of upholding this, what I think is an iconic ass character? Thank you. I, 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 I didn't feel so much pressure to be completely honest okay. because I, I didn't really know all of Deontay's story. Mm -hmm. Justin and I kind of had a very brief conversation about him and I just wanted to honor what was on the page and the essence of who he was. And so it was kind of, it was a no pressure situation. It was just about trying to find the truth mm -hmm. and trying to kiki. Yes, the truth and kiki is all we need. That's and it seems need. it's what America wanted because he has become the most beloved character in the show. Was that surprising to you when you started to see that reaction? Honestly, it was. Because it was one of those things where I got the, the job and I was supposed to do like two episodes. Mm -hmm. And so they kept writing and kept writing and I, every week I was coming back and reading the, the next script. And so I didn't know where the story was going. I didn't mm -hmm. know anything. And so to see people react to him so beautifully was shocking. 
I mean, it was really shocking. But deserved because the character, I mean, I am a black gay man, so I'm going to love black gay things. Um, but you know, the character was just strong to us. To, to us. <laughs> so, but speaking yeah. of that fact, you know, the show this season did a fantastic job of exploring queer black storylines in yeah. ways it hadn't done before, especially with your character leading the way. What was it like to see those stories push more to the forefront at a time when they're still suffering to get there? Well, it was necessary, first of all. And second of all, I think the thing about identifying as a black gay man was that I don't think that I had fully tackled my own queerness. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a word that was cool when I was growing (laughs) up. Queer was a bad word. So I think we're taking that word back and really trying to empower ourselves to push the boundaries of what Mm -hmm. we know to be true. And that was what this season was for me Mm -hmm. personally. Um, I'd never been in a glitter thong before. You look great. My own queerness was tackled that episode. Yes. And I was scared. (laughs) When they brought out that thong, I said, Lord Jesus. And she slipped right in. She slipped in. My mother was like, I can't watch this Your mother saw. Well, both my parents saw it. They were like, that's a lot. Yeah, but it was enough, parents. It was just enough. But so before I let you go, (laughs) I have to ask about my favorite scene. Yes. uh, One of my favorite scenes this season, which is where you all watch a version of Queer Eye. um, And Tan Francis' character is dressing. Uh, We have it right here. Someone in the KKK outfit. What were your thoughts on having that scene done? Because, you know, Queer Eye has been kind of critiqued at, you know, dealing too much with the Republicans. Uh, And you all are really kind of laughing at that subject. We were... And I will say that the thing that has been so interesting about this show is there's a lot of people that love the show and there's a lot of people that are critical of the show. And I think it's because we're talking about the issues that this country needs to be talking about. I think everybody knows that and can see see that. And so uh, for me, it was a great scene and funny and like there was an undertone of like, look, yes, we should be talking Mm -hmm. to each other and also let's not be too ridiculous. Yes, and there was a a lot of self-awareness in it, and I just love that so much. Well, we are out of time. Oh, no. So sad. Oh, no. Yes, buttons, buttons, buttons. Well, thank you so much for helping me today. Thank you. Uh, It's been lovely to meet you. And season three of Dear White People is streaming now on Netflix. More Aim to DM is up next. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Another day in paradise, Paul. Another day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's a tweet from Representative Dan Crenshaw responding to a news story about a woman who fired a gun during an attempted robbery. He writes, situations like this story are why we protect the Second Amendment. Side note, with universal background checks, I wouldn't be able to let my friends borrow my handgun when they travel alone like this. We would make felons out of people just for defending themselves. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez responded with this. You are a member of Congress. Why are you lending guns to people unsupervised who can't pass a basic background check? The people you're giving a gun to have likely abused their spouse or have a violent criminal record, and you may not know it. Why on earth would you do that? Um, Paul, this was just the beginning of their back and forth. What else did they have to say? Oh, yeah, it went entirely off the rails. Uh, Crenshaw then fought back like, oh, you're saying my friends are domestic abusers, and then... She went back saying that people don't always know if their friends are domestic abusers because they manipulate people, and this is why you can't trust them. We trust lending your friends guns. It was just, it kind of became a mess. So I did appreciate the people who were just sort of sitting, sitting back idly wondering, like, what is a sketchier request than, hey man, can I borrow your gun for a few hours? Yeah. <laughs> well, beyond that statement, was there anything else that stuck out to you about this very long back and forth between the two? 
Yeah, I actually think it's more interesting than it might seem on the surface because this is right now what is before America. This idea of passing universal background checks is probably the most uh, feasible, ambitious gun control policy that could pass right now. And so this is going to be debated, and it's an uncomfortable one for Republicans because typically when you talk about legislating guns, any kind of control on gun ownership, they point to the Second Amendment. That is a, a pretty a strong bulwark for defending off any type attempts to regulate guns. Background checks, you can't really use the Second Amendment on that because uh, people are not going to go out there and argue that you have a right to have a gun even if you are considered to be a danger or if you committed a string of violent crimes. So it kind of takes them off their usual talking points. And what we get are situations like this where you've got someone like Dan Crenshaw trying to make an argument against universal background checks. And as you can see, they're on much less sure footing than uh, normally when you hear Republicans talk about gun control. Well, you mentioned uh, they're on uh, much less sure footing. And um, what are the laws or gaps in the system right now for background checks? Oh, there's some major, major gaps in the system. I mean, in theory, if you are going to buy a gun, you have to get a background check in theory. Uh, and that is true if you're going to a major licensed retailer of guns. But there's no regulations against private sales. So you can buy guns online that can get around uh, background checks. You can buy guns at gun shows that can get around background checks. It's something like one in five gun sales uh, are basically done off the books and are not subject to background checks. So certainly, this is, a, this is a huge part of the system. And we've seen this time and time again with some of the mass shootings of the past decade have been people who have failed or would have failed a background check, because there are also issues with the whole National Background Check Registry, uh, who were able to purchase guns that they should not have been, and they used them for violence. Wow. Well, Paul, switching gears a bit this morning, and thank you for that background. Here's a tweet from Paul Farhi. The president's hurricane graphic appears to have been altered with a Sharpie to indicate a risk the storm would move into Alabama from Florida, thus appearing to validate his questionable tweet earlier in this week. Paul, just what is going on here with the Sharpie fiasco? Okay, so uh, the president <laughs> tweeted over the weekend that uh, Alabama was in danger of being hit with uh, hurricane storm level weather uh, on top of states like the Carolinas and Florida and Georgia. And uh, Alabama, Alabama <laughs> the state quickly responded, no, 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 it's fine. People, you don't need to freak out. We're not in the path. And then uh, Trump has consistently doubled down that he was right, despite uh, Hurricane Dorian not going to Alabama. And anyway, Trump yesterday showing a map uh, of the path of the hurricane or the potential path of the hurricane. And it's one of those maps where it gets wider as it goes farther out because of the growing uncertainty. Uh, it did not head towards Alabama, but there was a nice little Sharpie loop uh, extending in the direction of Alabama as if to prove that Donald Trump was right all along. So something that I didn't know is that um, there's actually a law regarding falsifying uh, National Weather Service forecasts. This wasn't just uh, you know a, a bad a, a bad decision in terms of uh, marking up a map. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, what you cannot do is you cannot falsify a weather report and then pass it off as <laughs> official, um, which people are arguing the president did. Maybe this is it, guys. Maybe this is what turns the tide on impeachment. <laughs> Maybe this is what convinces Nancy Pelosi. This could be, forget Russia, this could be what brings down Trump. It's a hurricane. I mean, listen, it's 2019. Sharpie Gate could be the thing. Oh, 
my um, God. Trump also shared this map yesterday saying this was the originally projected path of the hurricane in its early stages. As you can see, almost all models predicted it to go through Florida, also hitting Georgia and Alabama. I accept the fake news apologies. I mean... We're not oh. saying sorry. Sorry, sis. Okay, but the, 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 the best part of that is that there's this fine print at the bottom that essentially says, like, this is a supplemental map that should not be relied on on its own. And if this causes confusion, just disregard it and use the other maps. Mm. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Paul, we, before we let you go, we wanted to remind you that when you wear green on TV, things happen to you. Um, you, made, you made a critical oh, mistake in your color selection this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're on your own ride now down in D.C., so thank you so much for joining us today and enjoy your ride. This was a this was a good reminder. I'll never do it again. Thank you. <laughs> Have a good one. <laughs> All right, up next, I'm talking with Akai Littlejohn about New York Fashion Week. Stay tuned. Sixteen-year-old fashion phenom Akai Littlejohn wrote this on Instagram. I'm excited to announce that I will be having my first solo show this year at New York Fashion Week. I'll be showing my spring-summer 2020 collection. And Akai is here with me now to talk about the collection and the New York Fashion Week, which begins this Friday. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to have you. I'm very Thanks petrified to me. talk with you. I usually don't come to work really nervous. And you have made me nervous today. You all are going to find out why in a bit. But first, let's talk about you and your incredible career so far. So you gained fame as a 13-year-old contestant on Project Runway Junior. And now at just 16 years old, you will be debuting your first show. What does it feel like to have this moment? Um, it feels kind of like very crazy to have this moment. Like, because I've been dreaming for this exact moment for a long time now. And it's actually coming true at 16. It's really insane to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just super excited for it. And, you know, the big note here is that you are 16 and you're still in school. Tell me, how do you balance both things? Because I'm a hustler, but I don't know if I can hustle that. Um, well, it's kind of, like, interesting because, like, school is, like, really important. So is my brand. So, like, it's kind of, like, important to weigh out the differences because, like, obviously you do, like, have good grades and everything. Yeah, I'm trying to make myself as successful as possible. Mm-hmm at both times. So it could be challenging at times, especially now since I'm a junior, the workload's so much like more and heavier and like junior's really important for college and everything. So it's gonna be a little bit more difficult than this year than usual, especially since I've been, oh God, I'm talking too fast. No, you're fine. Um, I'm in a lot of clubs and everything, so it'll be interesting. Yeah, and I have faith that you're gonna figure this out because I think most young people that hustle a bunch of things can figure out, junior year especially. Um, so I wanna show your spring summer collection real quick. I think we have a photo and I'd love to hear what was your inspiration here for these beautiful garments you've done? Thank you. Um, my inspiration was like kind of a lot of things. I've been told that like a lot of my collections are very influenced by the 70s mm-hmm. in a sense, and I that's pretty present, but I like things to be very light and airy, and I get a lot of my inspiration from like the Hamptons vibes, and I want people to feel like beautiful and like confident in the clothes mm-hmm. I make, so that's what I really try to do. I love a Hamptons vibe. That is wealth, y'all, <laughs> wealth. And speaking of wealth, what celebrity would be your dream uh, celebrity to oh dress? My God. My dream celebrity, the list could go on and on, but like <laughs> Bella Hadid, oh. uh, the Kardashians, Beyonce. Beyonce, of course. <laughs> yeah. Like always, always and forever. Um, so I actually, uh, so first before we get to me, because we're about to get here, <laughs> you know, there is a, a big trend of the 2000s and late 90s right yes. now. Why do you think people are loving it so much? Um, I feel people are really loving it because 
a lot of the 90s and 2000s aesthetic was very like simple, but like also extreme at the same time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And like since it's 2019, it is now considered like a vintage and everyone loves a vintage look. Yes. So um, I think people really like looking forward to that. And a lot of the 2000s and 90s looks are very iconic and uh, people really like feeding off of that. Okay. I love that you said vintage because I actually grew up in the 2000s. <laughs> and I want to play a game with you where we scale my looks from then from 1 to 10 uh, and I get feedback from you. Are you down to give me some Feedback. I am very I'm so nervous about this in a very sincere way. So (laughs) let's roll the clips, y'all. Welcome to my past America. Here we go. Here I am, I think, at 17. And this would be about 2006. Um, What do we think about my vest? I think I'm wearing a walrus tooth, if I remember correctly. A yellow V-neck. Right. So, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the yellow of the shirt is really nice. It's a nice color yellow. Thank you. Thank you. The vest. Why is it necessary? If I could go back in time, I I think I was having like body, I didn't feel very thin that day, so maybe I put it over. I don't know, but do vests ever work like that? Never? Because that was a big thing in the early, late 90s. Like I remember like the club kids wearing these vests at like Express. I think that was from Express. (laughs) So anyway, so that's a no good. No. Okay, there we go. And let me go to the next one. So what do you think about this? Oh my God, I hate everything right now. <laughs> I'm wearing, so let's break it down. I'm wearing like a Western short sleeve shirt. I think it has buttons. I'm wearing a very distressed denim. My face is painted. What do we think about this? I mean, it's definitely a lot better than the first one. Oh, it's better? Yeah, that's good. Oh, g- <laughs> I guess. Um, is this shirt in style now though? I mean, it could be, to be honest, with like the whole TikTok e-boy vibe, I guess it could work. Okay, I just heard about e-boys. It's a new thing. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next one, three, because that one's making me nervous. Let's see <laughs> the next one, please. Here we go. This was in Newport. I think I was 18. Um, it was boating, I think, or something. So what do we think about this? You know, I'm wearing a white t-shirt, a scarf. I hear scarves are coming back this fall. Are they? <laughs> I'm killing myself now. <laughs> what did you think about this? And that was um, my sister. I mean, a white t-shirt will never go out of style. So like, the scarf, wow. Okay, Um, it really ruins the vibe, but. Okay, ruins the vibe. (laughs) So would you wear anything I just showed you today? I mean, the white (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. Okay, my white t-shirt, thank you. Wow, that was it, wow, thank you. All right, so what are some, before we let you go, what are some trends that you're really excited about that are coming back right now? Um, What I'm really excited about is the 90s, because just timeless like everything I feel like the 80s was a rough patch (laughs) it was very rough and then like the 90s came everything was very like simple minimal and like sexy and it was just really like a good moment Mm -hmm. then like the early 2000s was like kind of a moment but then like it started getting a little interesting a little extreme too extreme where it wasn't like that tasteful anymore Mm -hmm. no chino shade but like it was a little interesting But uh, I'm so really the, excited for so this. So the 90s. All right. So right before I really grew of age and was stressing, it's the thing that you're excited about, which now makes sense. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been so lovely to meet me. you. Um, and Alex is coming up next to Sitting Down with Shell Pro, the Grammy Award-winning singer who is iconic. Stay tuned. Here's a tweet from Samantha Ruddy. When I was a kid, most of my heroes were men. But now that I'm older, they're all Cheryl Crow. Aww. Cheryl Crow joins me now. Welcome. That is the sweetest thing ever. I oh my gosh. That. We got so much love from fans when we said that you were coming on the show. Oh, that's 
I'm gonna cry. Oh, that is so sweet. Well, listen, you are here to talk about your new album. It's called Threads. Yes. It has some original tracks. Uh, it has some covers on it. Lots of duets. Yes. Um, I want to know what was going on in your life and in the world that you wanted to put into this album. Oh my gosh. Well, it's an unbelievable time to be a songwriter. I mean, if you're writing about what's happening out there, and I'm a mom, I have two little boys. Mm -hmm. Um, what's happening in the world really affects the way you look at the future for your kids. So a lot of that stuff wound up on the album. Um, but I really want to make an album just with people I love. In fact, we called the album People I Love for a long time. Um, and then when it was all said and done, we realized, wow, this whole album documents all the threads back to my earliest influences, like when I was a little girl, to even looking into the future with young people like Maren Morris and Chris Stapleton and people that are kind of carrying on that singer-songwriter tradition. I mean, talking about some of the people that you love, you got Stevie Nicks, Sting, St. Vincent, even in a previously unreleased track from 2003 with Johnny Cash. I know! <laughs> how Unbelievable! Do you, yeah, how do you decide who to pair together when you're putting something like this together? It was kind of organic. I mean, the, the thing with Johnny was just, um, I mean, kind of mystical, to be perfectly honest. I recorded, I wrote that song and recorded it in 1996, I think, or 97. And then he recorded it really shortly before he passed away. And so we just combined uh, our versions with a, new, with a piano track. And it's so timely now, even though it was written back then. So a lot of these things just kind of presented themselves um, as the right thing. And I also want to make sure every time I send a song with somebody to somebody that it fit them so that they weren't like, oh, I don't want to put my vocal on that. You know what I mean? So it was pretty... You know, over three and a half years, we just kind of pulled it together. As you mentioned, um, it's really a timely moment to be a songwriter. Um, do you feel like because you have such a platform, like it's necessary for you to speak about various kinds of social issues and political issues? Do you think other artists should be doing that? Well, um, I, I think every artist should do exactly what their heart tells them to do. I mean, that's what art is. Art sort of documents who you are at the moment when you're you're making your art. But uh, for me, because I grew up in the generation of people that wrote songs about what was happening, I love that. I also, because I'm not competing for time at pop radio, I feel like I can, I'm sort of liberated. I can write about the things that matter to me and that I feel um, I need to write about. So, I mean, hopefully it's fun. It's a fun record. Hopefully there's a lot of hope on it. Um, and some good grooves and stuff. I mean, it's definitely not a down record. Mm. Now you signed on to um, Big Machine Records for the specific release. Yes. Um, and of course, that label is in the news now because of what's going on with Taylor Swift. Yeah. Um, but you, I read an interview that you said uh, Scott Burch had really compelled you to join the label. Well, so I made this album, and talk about being liberated, I made this album with no record label. So basically, I have a studio above my horses in my barn, which is right at the end of my driveway. And so I could just work at work as I wanted to and didn't have any constraints and nobody going, you need to make this record or that record. It needs to be out at this time or not. And so once it was done, we took it to some different labels. And Scott um, just had a vision for it. And that's what we wanted. We wanted somebody to think out of the box, to figure out how to get um, a legacy artist music out there into the ears of all different de demographics. And he was that guy. Mm. Um, you said this is your last album. How did you arrive at that decision? Um, isn't that just the weirdest thing to think yes, about? Yes, yes! I know, and like, we can't believe it. Like, I know, so what am I gonna do it. with my life? <laughs> um, no, I think, um, you know, the further I got into the record, the more I, feel, I felt like, wow, how do I follow this up? I have loved making albums. In fact, I've produced a lot of records on my own. And 
I love the tradition of it. I have loved growing up reading albums and um, and listening to them top to bottom. But I don't think people necessarily listen to records that way anymore. Um, so for me, I love the idea of now putting out songs in the immediate, like what we did last year with St. Vincent with Wouldn't Want to Be Like You. Um, but, you know, people should keep making albums. But for me, I feel like at this moment, I like the immediate. Mm. How has your relationship with your music changed over the past couple of decades? Like, I feel like... We're madly in love. I got, <laughs> well, it's, I got a message when, when I tweeted out that I was doing this. I got a message from someone who was in college saying that they still listen to a lot of your music in the 90s, like, if it makes you happy. And oh, on repeat, good. like, someone who is a, a teenager now who maybe grew up with, uh, you know, listening to the, your music vis-a-vis their parents. Yeah, it's, a, it's really interesting. We played Bonnaroo last year. And, I mean, to be perfectly honest... I'm not an insecure person, but I was actually worried if anybody's going to show up. And it was packed. There were like 70,000 people or 70, I don't know how many. It was crazy. Over 70,000 people. Um, you, young people. And they were singing every word. And I think part of being around as long as I have is that a lot of um, kids have grown up with my music being played in their house. They've grown up with it being a part of the soundtrack of their younger years. Just like for me, the Rolling Stones and... Um, Linda Ronstadt, like I know all those songs. I know all the songs from the 80s and the 90s. And so there's something really great about it, about playing Glastonbury for 175,000 people. I mean, just insane, a sea of people and seeing all ages seeing my songs. And that's been a really glorious thing Mm -hmm. to be around long enough for another generation to know those songs. Yeah, that has to be surreal. And I actually, I wanna talk specifically about um, one song that now feels really timely again. Um, in 1996, uh, you your self-titled album was banned at Walmart because of a specific lyric, which was, watch our children as they kill each other with a gun they bought at the Walmart discount stores, which now, I mean, that really, really hits. I mean, have you been reflecting on that particular song over the past couple of days or any of the yeah, other? Yeah, I mean, I was so happy to see Walmart take the stance that it did and how how just uh, forward-thinking and responsible, responsible it, it was to take that stance and to stop selling guns. And yeah, it makes me sad that that album is like 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I wouldn't change it. That being banned at Walmart was really hard yeah. because at that time, that's where people bought physical records. And in my hometown, that was the only place you could buy your record. But I wouldn't change it. You know, I think it's always, it's always good to point out what you see, even if it's not popular. You know, I look at Johnny Cash, and I think how weighty it is to have him on Redemption Day. He's no longer here, but knowing what he stood for, to me, creates more impact for every word that he says and who he is now and who he will continue to always be. So, you know, I'm glad to see Walmart change. I would love to take total responsibility, but um, that was a 20-year-old song. At least they've made the, they've made the stance they have, and I, I hope other um, stores that sell guns will take that same stance. Oh, you, I, I think I saw that you were involved in Rock the Vote efforts previously in the 90s, right? Do you yes. have any plans? Uh, I mean, have you been thinking about 2020 at all? Do you have any plans of uh, getting involved somehow in either, you know, Get Out the Vote Yeah, we, um, we have always, in fact, last year we did a Get Out the Vote and Maren Morris came um, and sang with me. In fact, that was one of the first collaborations and Jason Isbell and um, voting to me is so important, you know, no matter what side you're on. And, and granted, everything is so divisive now. Um, voting is a, a glorious right that we have in this country. And um, I mean, if it were up to me, I would say there should be a day off from everybody from work to give them the opportunity for everybody in this country to vote. Um, but yes, I will always be out there, you know, 
encouraging people to at least get out and make your voices be heard. Mm. Um, now, looking back uh, on the 90s, just a little bit more with me. Um, you've talked about in some recent interviews about uh, how you felt a little bit shunned by your peers, like a little bit by the grunge movement, maybe like Courtney Love and Beck. Um, why do you feel like you didn't get the same treatment uh, as they did in music? Um, I, 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 some of that's sort of been taken out of context. Mm. What was happening when my first record came out was very Seattle-oriented. Um, kind of like the punk scene was when mm-hmm. when when the New York Dolls and uh, the Ramones and that kind of music came in. It made everything else seem a little uncool, a little dated sounding. When Tuesday Night Music Club record came out, it totally didn't sound like anything else, which was kind of a great thing. But I definitely didn't fit into this and I didn't fit into that. Um, and I got kind of absorbed into this whole echelon of artists who were my influences, which... I mean, thank God, you know, I got to sit in in those early days with the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan and Willie Nelson and uh, uh, Amy Lou Harris and so many people that I've loved and that um, who are on this record and who I continue to just love and admire. So, yeah, it's kind of great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean do you I'm ever not complaining? <laughs> I mean, no. I, like, do you ever just sit and look back like almost three decades down the line and you're like, all right, I did. I did pretty good. I feel pretty great. Um, I do. I mean, I, now I kind of look back and go, oh, my God. <laughs> what? But at the time when you're in, like you're in that tunnel, that tunnel vision of like, got to be working, got to be producing, got to be doing, did it, did you know, just always working, working, working. You don't really stop to go, oh my God, I can't believe, you know, I want a <laughs> yeah, Grammy. Yeah, of course. Uh, you don't let yourself absorb it or even own it. So now as I'm older and slower, um, <laughs> I do stop and smell the roses. It's, yeah, yeah I mean, there are roses everywhere. Oh my gosh. Well, it has been so much fun talking to you. So thank, thank you. you so much Thanks for, for having me. me. You're the cutest thing ever. Oh, thank you. My oh, goodness. Oh, my God. Oh, yes, please. Well, Threads is available <laughs> now. Up next, we're talking to the makers of the podcast, The Clearing. Here's a treat from Justin McGoldrick. When April Balashio, Balashio, sorry, was 40 years old, something she'd feared for decades was finally proven true. Her father, Edward Wayne Edwards, really was a murderer. And joining me today is April and Josh Steen, the host of the podcast, The Clearing, which documents her story. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm Good. doing great. Good, thank How you. Are you. And I'm sorry about messing up your name. We were just talking about that, trying to get that S-she-she-o. That's okay. All right. Well, let's jump into your story. You know, your father is one of the most prolific uh, serial killers in American history, and you actually were the person that tipped off the police uh, a year before his death, uh, a few years before his death, but led to his arrest. Tell me about that moment, what it was like to find that out. Well, I suspected for many years, um, growing up, you know, how many people do you know that have been murdered? And... Mm -hmm. I just knew so many because of the way that we traveled. And the, even after I called Detective Garcia and I gave him information, I still didn't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. And um, I still even had a hard time believing it, even when I read it in the newspapers. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I called Detective Garcia and I asked him, because I had, I had read in the newspapers that the DNA was a match. And... Mm-hmm. I asked him, I said, I need to know, I need to hear from you. Is it, is it really true? And he says, April, there's no mistake. The DNA is a match. Wow. And that's when it really hit me. Because up until that point, even though I had all the suspicions, I still didn't want to believe it. No. And when I heard it from Detective Garcia, I was actually 
in my in the vehicle, I was traveling down to see my mom, and I started having like a panic attack, mm-hmm. and I had to pull off to the side of the road because it hit me that if that DNA was a match for the um, murders in Wisconsin, that my suspicions were true, that it wasn't just those two, that there was many more. Mm. And my worst nightmares came true. Um, And you have not wanted to talk a lot about your father in the past, but now you're doing this new show with Josh. What made you decide to take all of us on this journey of you finding out about his history more in depth? Well, as Jess can tell you, (laughs) I was a reluctant uh, candidate. She was. Mm -hmm. uh, Very reluctant. Um, It's, it was because of all the untruths that were out there being said about my dad. It wasn't just that. The breaking point was that I started having um, lawyers call me to ask them to ask me to help them get their clients' convictions overturned due to um, the um, publicity and due to the uh, the information that was out there about my father that mm-hmm. wasn't true. And that was the breaking point. Matter of fact, after uh, one of the last emails that I had answered with a, a lawyer trying asking me to help him, I turned right around and I texted Josh. I call him the last man standing <laughs> because uh, the years, all the media had mm-hmm. been reaching out to me. I kept saying, no comment. I'm mm-hmm. not going to talk. I'm not going to talk. And he just was, was most persistent. Mm-hmm. And he was literally had just contacted me maybe a couple days before I turned around and said, all right, I've had enough. You're like, I'm, this is the person. I'm, I'm ready yeah. to talk. But Josh, what was it like to hear this? I mean, this is a big deal. This is her life story. What made you feel, what made you want to do this so in a big way? And also, what was it like to hear that you're going to do it? Well, I had like started down the path of doing a story about her dad because I was like, who is this obscure person who I've never heard of who's being accused of all these murders that like I'm not sure that he actually committed? So, mm-hmm. in the course of like starting to research that idea as a magazine story, I had reached out to April and said, like, this is the person who knows the most, right? This is the most interesting part of the story. And she was like, yeah, I'm not interested. I'm not talking to people. And I realized she hadn't talked to the media in the nine years. This was 2016. In the seven years, I guess, since she'd made the call, she'd basically done no interviews. But then, as she said, like, I don't know if it was a couple days or a week or whatever, pretty quickly thereafter, she was like, you know what? Actually, I am ready to talk. And Mm -hmm. I think what she's saying is it was time to sort of set the record straight because there's, like, the truth of what her dad did. And then there were all these, like, crazy theories and mythologies developing Mm -hmm. about you know, tons of them, tons yeah, of them. Murders you know, he didn't commit. Exactly. You know, the show's called The Clearing, and I'd love to hear like why that name. I have ideas about it, and I think I don't want to spoil this for the, the crowd here, but why were you so drawn to that moment of your story? I mean, the story? name, we went, we, there were a lot of names considered, but it was sort of like, it's a hard, it was a hard story to encapsulate in a word, right? Mm-hmm. For a podcast, you want a short title, but I felt like what we were doing was clearing up the truth and also trying to clear cases, ideally, because April is convinced there are still murders that haven't been solved that her dad mm-hmm. committed. And so if we could clear cases or at least put the idea out there that there are cases that mm-hmm. should be cleared and also clearing the truth from the lies. I mm-hmm. mean, as April can tell you, there's a lot of lies out there. So yeah. she's not contesting that, not to put words in her mouth, that like her dad did bad things. Yeah. But, but certainly there are things he's accused of that he did not do. Yeah, like your father's been accused of, of killing John Bonnet Ramsey, which I know is not true. Um, he's also, some there's belief that he is a Zodiac killer. And I think what I'd love to hear from you today is, you know, you have become so dedicated not only sorting out the falsehoods about him, but also finding the truth about him. And that seems like an incredible undertaking because you're uncovering depths of your father's own private life that would be hard for anyone. Why has that become so important to you right now? If you were to meet the victims' families and to 
to, um, I'm gonna to mention the Hack family. And for instance, you know, he, for 30 years, he lived with a suspicion of someone in his community had killed his son. Mm. And, um, and going into town and, you know, looking around and thinking that, you know, someone in his, his community killed his son, living with that for 30 years. Yeah. And then finding out that, you know, no one in his community had killed his son and then finding the truth and, and bringing somewhat of a closure to, you know, he can't have complete closure. He lost his son. Mm-hmm. But helping him, sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. Helping him, that is enough. And that's what I would like to do is help people because I couldn't imagine if that were my child. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what was the ultimate reason why I started this is, is my children started hitting the young adult age. And I just kept thinking about all these young adults that I knew were murdered um, that I somehow was associated with or my father was associated with. And I kept, you know, had these suspicions. And as a mother, I just couldn't imagine losing my child that way. Yeah, yeah. And not knowing. Yeah. And that's what makes this work so tremendous for both of you is that you are really undertaking huge emotional labor uh, in your own family, but also with other people in the community. And I think I'd love to hear before I let you both go, um, how do you want to see this podcast continue to help others potentially? Or is that what the goal is right now? Um, I think the podcast has has um, done what I, I had wanted it to do. It, it shed light. Um, it, it's brought truth to the public and has opened the doors for me to step through to continue the journey. Um, and and, and that's, that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, other doors have been open for me to, to continue. The, to continue. Mm-hmm. And Josh, as a journalist, what is it like to be part of such... It's such an important show because it's not just about this one incident, your one story, but it also is helping fa- other families get through things. Yeah, I mean, April's heard me say this many times. I mean, I've never done anything like this where, like, the subject of something I'm working on has been like a collaborator with me. Like, we're very much partners in this, it, and I like April put a lot of faith and trust in my ability to tell her story, I think, correctly, and also to do what she just said, which is like we we didn't set out to solve crimes. We knew we couldn't create a podcast and solve a bunch of murders. However, we could set the record straight and at least create a new starting point. So in April, when she says, like, continuing, like, she's going to help people as much as she can. And if we hope that police departments or families hear the show and reach out and, you know, maybe we can eventually clear some more cases, mm-hmm. right? But we didn't set out to solve murders. I just hope we, we did justice to the story and, and kind of created a new starting point for the Ed Edwards story and yeah. for April to continue helping people. Um, well, thank you both so much for sharing this space with me and telling your story for all of us. It's incredible work that you're both doing and I'm thankful for it. Gosh, I'm knocking things over. Well, you can listen to The Clearing Now wherever you get your podcast. Up next, we are reading your tweets. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Just is this real life? I just have a clap. Is this real life? Cheryl Crow. Not for Cheryl Crow. She walked like, oh, like she she walked on set and uh, she almost walked over to this set where I was hanging out and I almost didn't correct her that she was going the I wrong know, way. I, I was like, Cheryl, no. <laughs> it's me, Zach, your best friend. And I was like, uh-uh. But you all's conversation was just so I mean, she's good. got a range. Like, it was, she can she talk about anything. So yeah. good. It was 
Wonderful. And you get that sense that, like, she has achieved that level of excellence and longevity in her mm-hmm. career because, like, she just, you know. The icon. I'm, I'm just taken. I'm taken. You can, her energy. She complimented me at the end. Yes. And I'm not even trying to humble brag here. I just almost passed out. Yeah, I, I'm just I, trying to tell you that I, like, could almost could not keep it together. I heard the compliment. I said, what about me? But you know, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Well, thank you for that joyful yeah. moment. Yes. Mm. Well, we wanted to see y'all's favorite back-to-school pictures. Nikki tweeted this photo of her granddaughter in pre-K. Oh. Oh, that's so cute. Oh. I, that what is on the tape? Olive, Olive. Oh, Olive. Yeah. so cute, Olive. Well, Sydney Martinez, you tweeted, thank the Lord it's New York City's first day back at school. Grown-ups have these streets back. Amen. Yes. I mean, it's true. Yes. So send you your know. kids back to school and make sure they look cute. Thank you. There you go. That's all we have to say on that matter, <laughs> Yes, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Well, thank you to our guests, Sorry, here, G, Paul McLeod, Will Summer, April Balasio, Josh Dean, Akai Littlejohn, Griffin Matthews, and Cheryl Crow. Ooh, and Cheryl Crow. Let's say that again. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, Twitter. Bye.